I will be reading 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who truly are widows. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we just come before you grateful and just thankful. Um, there's not words um, that would really measure up to just say, um, thank you, God, for the wondrous mystery that, Jesus, you would come and live amongst um, this mess that is this world um, in sin, in sin and, and, and toil and curse, Lord Jesus, you came into that and uh, you, lived, um, you lived a righteous life because we're, we're not righteous without you. Um, we're born in this curse, this sinful mess, and Jesus, we needed you and you came. Um, Lord, um, Father, we, we thank you for um, sending your son, your only son, to, to this mess um, that we might um, be brought to you. Lord, Lord God, everything you've done, everything you've done and everything you're doing and will do is to bring us back to yourself, Father. And we thank you for that hope, that, that truth. And Lord, I pray that you would just um, encourage our hearts with that. Um, may we ever be grateful, and especially this morning as we open your word. And God, I just pray this, um, Lord, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, hearts to understand your word. Um, Lord, speak through this broken vessel to um, every broken vessel here, Lord, and inform us and transform us by your word. And we want to leave um, different people than when we came in. Lord, that's what our prayer. Um, God, help me come under your word and, and um, just edit what I say, Lord, that you may be glorified and honored. And, um, and we, 
we just um, thank you for your word, that we can stand upon it, that it's a firm foundation. So Lord, um, have your way with us, and uh, we pray this in your matchless name, Jesus. And everyone who agreed with that prayer said, amen. 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 So there once was an ugly girl turned beautiful bride. A ring on her finger, a nice new white dress, flowers everywhere, a beautiful ceremony. The family was there, the bride, the groom, once apart, now together. A unity candle lit, the kiss, the embrace, vows spoken. She said, I do. He said, I did. And then he smiled. He looked her in the eye and said, see you soon and left her standing at the altar. Just weeks before, he had defeated the dragon. He plucked her from the dungeon. He rescued her from the evil castle. The steed was mighty. The armor was shining, and feet were swept up. But there, there she was at her wedding, watching her knight ghost away. He gave her the ring. He signed the certificate. He gave her a Polaroid of their first kiss as husband and wife, but still looking at her as he backed away from the altar. He simply said, don't worry. I'll be back soon. I'm just not done working on the house we're going to live in yet. Perplexed, she asked what that could mean. My best man, he said, he'll explain it all while I'm gone. And then, just as he was cresting the hill, almost out of sight, she could hear him yell, Oh, and did I tell you, we're going to be moving in with my dad. And that was it. He was gone. She couldn't remember how long it had been. She knew she was married. She was in her new dress. She could see the ring, the signed certificate on the wall, his best man still there reminding her she was married, that he would, in fact, come back soon. But she was left wondering what soon really meant to be continued. To be continued. Just hold that. Hold that in your head for, for, for a little bit. Um, have any of you felt left at the altar? in a sense. Have, anybody, have any of you felt abandoned or lonely or truly alone, like you had nowhere to turn, like there was just no one around, no one to take care of you? Have you ever had moments like that? Maybe, maybe even right now you just feel alone, maybe alone in a crowd. Have you felt that way? I know I have. If that has ever been you or even right now, if you feel that way, I believe there is hope in this week's uh, passage that we just read. Have you ever seen someone you knew who was alone, who just was abandoned, who had no hope, had no help? Um, have you seen them? And, and did, you, did you rescue them? Did you, did you reach out to them and help them? Or do you even have a hard time noticing when someone's hurt or lonely or, or just desperate? I know I have a hard time sometimes seeing people that way. I think this passage, I believe, will encourage us to, uh, to all of us to look out for those in our body who are truly alone, people who are truly hurting. Um, this passage will encourage us also what the heart of God is behind this, why we even should be looking. My, it's my hope and prayer that God would open our eyes to see um, his heart in, in, in how he wants to build his church, our church. Um, 
As Jason said uh, earlier, we are in 1 Timothy. We're continuing, and we're about three-quarters of the way through, and it is uh, the book of 1 Timothy is um, written by Paul um, to help us, to, to show us. It's like a blueprint for the church, not the church building, for, but for the people, right? Um, that, that God is building up uh, like living stones, Peter says, in, into his church. That's us. So Paul wrote this letter, and he states that the purpose in chapter 2. Um, and we've read it before, but let's read it again. Um, chapter 2, 14 through 15. This is the purpose. This is why Paul wrote this book. He says, I hope to come to you soon. Paul's writing this to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Household means family, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, the, the church that, that upholds his family, his family that upholds truth. 1 Timothy is a book of action. It's a book of behavior, a book of conduct. Therefore, the book is highly practical. There's tons of imperatives uh, for Timothy, and that Timothy would in turn teach those imperatives, those, those actions, those, those steps um, to the church body. Um, it con- um, Paul says constantly, remind the people of this, uh, command these things. Uh, this word is, is good and trustworthy. Teach this out. And so this week's passage is no exception. It's very practical. Um, it's do this, don't do that kind of passage. We just read it. Um, and I encourage you, if you care about context, and you should care about t- context, but if you do, um, you should go back and listen um, to, uh, if you want to get more meaning and kind of set up this passage, you should go back to, to Dan's uh, message online, uh, windsorchurch.org, I believe, and you can go online and listen to his message on June 4th. It's all about the passage we just read about the purpose of this letter about building this family. So we're going to talk a lot about family in this, in this sermon. So if you, care, um, if you care about context, go back and listen. If you don't care, you should. Start caring. Start caring about context. It's good. Um, we're going to look at this passage in three parts. Three parts. And the first part... Uh, if you're taking notes, you can just title it The Church Family, and it's verses 1 and 2. Part 1. These two verses are describing how we are to see and act towards each other as a church family. It says this again, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, and younger women like sisters in all purity. It's all about family. Right, how we are to um, in, uh, uh, act and see each other. So the first little little um, thought: Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Rebuke there means harshly rebuke, like strike out with your words, literally. Um, do not do that. Um, it means it means to strike or punch. So Timothy, do not strike an older man with your words, quite literally. So Timothy's a younger pastor. We know that because you know Paul is encouraging him not to. Um, have people despise him for your youth, and don't let that bring you down. He presumably has older men in his congregation, right? So in his church family. So he still needs to shepherd and guide them, though. How does he do that? How does he direct older men? And Paul says, by encouraging them, by exhorting them. And, And the word doesn't mean, doesn't take out admonishment. Like, it can be, the word can be rendered admonish, um, but it needs to be a, um, uh, a soft admonishment, 
right? Um, an encouraging admonishment. As, as a son would never rebuke harshly their dad if it's a good relationship, right? A son respects their dad. And um, they might have something to say like, hey, dad, you know, I think I, I've been watching you and, and, you know, this is probably when you get older. And, and you say like, dad, I think it might be good if you, maybe, I think it'd be good if you did that. Why don't you take up fishing because you're just watching TV all day. I don't know what it is, but, it's, but you're not going to rebuke him. You're going to encourage him as a father. That's how we are to treat brothers, older brothers in the body, men and women, women, uh, older women. So um, we can exhort, we can appeal. Rebuke doesn't go upward, typically. Um, however, this doesn't give you younger men and women a pass on speaking up when you need to towards your older brothers and sisters. Um, I hate conflict. I hate it. I, I avoid it like the plague, but as I've grown and, and by God's grace, he's sanctified me, I know that I cannot avoid conflict as a true brother in Christ. Conflict is not all bad. Um, sometimes I need to speak up, and it's out of love that I would do so. Being quiet doesn't mean you're loving. Actually, it could be neglect if you don't, because it's, it's like saying, you know, I see this in you, brother, but I don't care that you grow in it. I'm too afraid to speak up, so um, the conflict is more important to me than my love for you. That's what it's actually saying. The, avoiding the conflict is, is, is uh, more important to me than, than speaking lovingly to you. Then it says, um, treat younger men like brothers, and the same thing, older men. Do you love the younger men in this body enough to speak the truth to them? If you love them, then you won't be quiet when you see it, because you want them to grow, because you love them, right? And they, they can learn from you. Treat older women like mothers, it says. So respect and honor them, right? These are kind of all obvious imperatives, but we're just going to go through it, because it's, it's good to think through it. Treat older women like mothers. So what does that mean? Respect and honor them. Hold doors open for them. Help carry stuff for them. Defend them. You know, sometimes young people like to make fun of older people. Um, in, 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 I've heard it, you know, in, in working with youth, and I probably have done it. Um, like, uh, you know, you kind of can tease or whatever. Defend an older saint when you hear that. Respect them. They are wise. They have gone before you. Jesus died for them. Um, listen to them. One way to honor an older saint is to ask them questions. Listen to them. It honors them. Ask their opinions. Then, then the other obvious one, treat younger women in the body as sisters in all purity. And, and I, would say, I would just ask, why, why, does, God, or why does Paul, um, I guess, why does God inspire Paul to write in all purity? In all purity, it's the only one that has that. Um, and, and let me just be real. Not that I wasn't real before, but let me just be real. In all uh, young men um, and, and men in this body, there are a lot of beautiful women in this body, right? There's a lot of beautiful young women here. How do you see them? Do you see them as sisters? Or do you see them as something more or less? This is why Paul adds, with all purity, guard your hearts. Guard your eyes. Jesus purchased your sisters here in this room by his blood they are his, um, they are precious in his sight, and we should see them as their older brother, Jesus, sees them. Younger women, little sisters in Christ here in this room, here's a question for you. Are you behaving like a little sister or something more? Do you want to be seen in another way? 
The way you behave and dress should reflect sisterhood. Are you okay with looking like a dork, flawed, tomboy little sister who just came in from playing in the mud and your older brother can make fun of you kind of relationship? I was thinking about, you know, my, my, my son, my daughter, how they relate to each other. I know they love each other, Josiah and Esther, but, and, and, and you know, and, but they, but they, and they would, they love, they die, they die for each other, but they, they, they're just like, you know, they always bicker and stuff like that. And it's a different kind of relationship. Are we men and, and women, are we, are we treating each other like sisters and brothers? Are we seeing each other that way, bought by the blood of Jesus? Church family, that's what we often say. Hey, church family, you know, we encourage you from up front. That's what we are. We're a church family. Um, do we eat together? Do we play together? Do we cry together? Are we, are we together? It's kind of hard to be a family if we're not together. How are we doing this? How are we doing? Are we good at it? Are we doing it? Are we growing? Um, some questions. Are you part of a community group? Um, do you feel like a family member? Have you done everything, so if you're new here, have you done everything to enter into this family, or would you rather stay anonymous? Have you done everything you can? And the church family, um, are we doing everything we can to move people in from being guests to, um, to being family members? I think, you know, we've grown a lot in this as a church, and um, we as pastors often talk about how do you make that transition from someone feeling like a guest in the foyer to, like, being part of the family, like we adopt you in, and, 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 and you're part of us. Like, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a family member. How are we doing with that church family? Are we welcoming people in? Are we looking for them? That's, that's, that's our mandate. Um, and then there's a ton of people in here, 30 years old and younger. Younger brothers and sisters, do you seek the wisdom of um, older saints who have gone before? Do you do that? Do you ask them advice and do you listen? Which do you go to more, Google or your older saints in Christ? Are you letting them be as fathers and mothers to you? If you're doing it already, great. You're really wise. You're really wise people. If you're doing that already. If you're not doing that, that's why you really need to. Because you need some more wisdom. Sorry. Can I say that? Be offended if you want. Um, okay, that's it. Part two. Part two. Where the biological, this is the title, maybe the biological and church family meet. Part two, where the biological and church family meet. Verses three through eight, and then we're going to tack on 16. Verse, verse three, read with me. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Let's pause there for a second. In verse three, Paul is expanding on this idea of church family, and he talks about the balance between relationship between biological and church families. So in verse 3, it says, honor widows who are truly widows. What does that mean when Paul says truly, like he qualifies widows there? And in verse 5, Paul clarifies what a true widow is. Verse 5 says, she who is truly a widow, comma, left all alone, comma, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. A true widow is one who's left all alone with no family, no biological family to take care of her. That's the qualifier. That's what Paul's talking about. True widows. Verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, and this is, so, so by Paul's context, this would be not a true widow, let them, the children, 
or grandchildren, that's the them, first learn to, number one, show godliness to their own household, and two, let them make some return, and that word means payback or recompense to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If a woman's husband died, it becomes the obligation of the rest of the remaining family to take care of her physical needs, and it starts with the children. They are to, number one, show godliness, which means to show reverence and honor and to love with action, sacrificial love. To make some return is, is the second thing. That means that there's a sense that their parents have spent so much time, so much energy, so much sacrifice on their children that it's the least a, a kid can do to give back um, that same sacrifice, to take care of their parents because they've been taken care of by their parents. It's paying them back. Now, we know as parents, we're not going to love our kids only if, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of you, son, if you promise me when I'm retired, you're going to take care of me. You know, that's, there's no contingency. We're going to do it no matter what. But as kids, we need to look up to our parents and go, wow, look at what they sacrificed for us. We, how could we not, in turn, give as much back to them? And, you know, um, and that's hard, right, to think about, like, that, that, the implications of that are pretty big. And some, some here in this body are really have done this and lived an example with this, taking their parents in at an old age. But it's a sacrifice, right? Um, and when we ask ourselves, like, how far should I go with that? Like, how far do you really want me to sacrifice their God? Um, maybe the question should be, like, how far do my parents go for me? Did they clean me up when I was messy? Did they? You know, it's just a question. It's just a question. To, to give back to our parents. Now jump down to verse 16, and it's talking more about that relationship between the biological and the church family. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it might care for those who are really widows. That means really, like truly, left all alone widows. If there's still believing family around to care for someone's need, it's the family, the biological family's burden, not the church's burden first. It's the Biological families first, not the church's burden first. The church needs to be free to care for those who are really in need with no family. That's what he's saying. Pretty simple concept. Verse 8, let's go back up. No one bouncing around. Sorry, I have like kind of a circular brain, so if you're trying to go linearly, I'm sorry. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here's the principle at work. If you have a family member, a relative, who is in need of care, and you have the means to care for them, then you care for them. If you don't, you've denied the faith, and you're worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty harsh. Why so extreme, Paul? I ask that a lot when I'm reading Paul's letters. Why, why is that so extreme there? I mean, wow. That's... And he's saying that even pagans unbelievers know how to take care of their family. How could we not take care of our family when we've been given so much by the Lord? How can we not do what unbelievers know to do without having received all the blessings from the Lord? It's disgraceful. And if you have a family member, I'll say it again, if you have a family member or relative who is in need of care and you, and you have the means to care for them, then you must care for them. Or else, if you don't, you're worse than a pagan. You've denied your faith. Caring for family is never convenient. It, it's not, it's, this is not saying that, like, 
um, sometimes, sometimes you must, um, maybe the means you have to take care of them is money because you don't have the medical expertise to take care of a family member that you need to take care of. So you need to pay money to someone else with the expertise, and that's okay. There's institutions. It's not like you can't, it's not like you can't um, allow someone else to take care of your family. That's not you neglecting. But if, if the reason to... Um, if the reason to put your, your parents or your family members in the care of someone else is for your um, convenience and comfort, it's always, it's always sinful and you're worse than an unbeliever when you do that. If convenience is the reason, that's, that's what this is saying. That clear, that black and white. Caring for family is never convenient. It's not convenient for parents to take care of kiddos. And it's not convenient for kiddos to take care of parents. Love is sacrifice. 100% of the time, it's easier not to love someone than it is to love them. I will like go toe-to-toe with anybody here. If you, if you can show me where it's easier to love someone than not love them, um, uh, if it's truly love, I just don't think it's... I, love always is sacrifice. Love is always sacrifice, time, energy, uh, mental thought. Um, it's easier to watch Netflix than love somebody. It's easier to just sit and do nothing. It's just easier, but it, it's never convenient. But, but, but God is calling us. Paul is calling Timothy to, to impress upon them that this is our obligation um, because of the grace that we've already received from him. Part three, caring for true widows. You can call it caring for true widows. We live in a different day with uh, modern medicine where we don't have a lot of men dying in their 40s and 50s. But back then, um, they would have. There's a lot of men dying. The life expectancy was a lot lower um, in Paul's day. That's why uh, widowhood and, and, um, and fought the fatherless, the orphans, are, are so prevalent in, in the scriptures because uh, they didn't have the, the sterile environment we live in. And so men were dying earlier out in the field working. Um, they just died of diseases. There was no penicillin in, discovered yet. And so um, widows happened. Like there was a lot of widows and a lot of orphans because that's, there were a lot of people dying. And so you could say dying was more part of a life than it was, than it is now. And also it was a patriarchal society. So, so a woman couldn't own property. Typically, um, she could caretake, she could be a caretaker for it until her son uh, would get old enough to take care of the property, but that's it. And so when her husband died, she lost the property. And so um, if she didn't have, according to, I think it's called the Leverite vow, um, according to um, the law, um, so if, if a husband died, then it was the obligation of the son um, to take care, of, uh, take care of the property, take care of the mom. But if there was no son or wasn't old enough, then it was the brother's responsibility. And if the brother could marry her, he'd marry her to take her under his wing and to pr- uh, protect her so she wouldn't be a widow anymore. And then if, if it wasn't that brother, it'd be the next brother and, and so on. But a true widow is one that doesn't have sons or brother-in-law to take care of her. And so she couldn't own her own property and make her own money. So she was left with nothing. And there was a lot of widows back then. To see a practical picture of all this, um, I encourage you for your homework to read the book of Ruth. It's an awesome book. It's this widow 
who has, um, who lost, she lost her husband, and she had two sons, and they both died, and so she had two daughter-in-laws, one of them being Ruth, and, and you see this love for Ruth taking care of her, her, her widowed mom, and she's also widowed, and it's just a beautiful picture, so for homework, read that, and it's just a beautiful um, picture of God's love, and it also points to Christ and his redemption of us, and so just really encourage you to read that. Um, Verse 5 through 6, though, we'll just continue, and, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about more of this, what Paul's talking about here. So verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers at, uh, night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So Paul is simply drawing a contrast between those, those who are truly widows, all alone, worthy of the church's care, and a woman who may be a physical widow, but maybe shouldn't be considered to be helped. The first woman is dependent upon God. The second woman is independent and self-focused. And at first, this sounds harsh, but then Paul kind of goes on and explains some more of why the delineation um, between the two. Verses 9 through 10, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. You look at that list, it's like, wow, like that's a big, that's a tall order for a woman to be enrolled, whatever that means, enrolled into what? Um, it kind of reminds me of the list of the qualifications of deacons or the qualifications of elders um, or overseers earlier in chapter 3 where, wow, who can attain to this? But just like that, this is, a, this is a description of her character, her overall general character for a woman to be enrolled in, in, in for the church to take care for this widow. She must have high character. The church must know her, and she must be seen um, as um, in a general trajectory of, of growth and um, care for the body. And so, so that's kind of what it's saying. It's not, not meant to be necessarily taken in a, taken in a literal way um, exactly. And I'll explain that a little, bit, a little bit. So what does it mean to be enrolled? Um, there's a lot of commentaries that said, like there's, maybe there's some, some other enrollment, like for an office of these older widows. And I, I don't take to that. I, I believe it's simple that Paul is just kind of drawing a... Um, He's reminding us and referring back to something that was taking place way back in the beginning of the church in Acts 6, if you remember. When the church first started, um, there were Hellenistic Jews, which are Greek, and Hebrew Jew, Jews, um, and they were both together, and the widows of the Hebrews were getting taken care of before the Greek widows, and there was a complaint, and, and so the apostles didn't have the ability to take care of them themselves, so they appointed seven deacons to do so, just to take care of the widows. There's a lot of widows in that day, and they were just there to take care of them, and I think that's what Paul is referring to. It's a tradition that continued throughout the church that that the church was careful to make sure everyone was taken care of, especially these widows who were truly widows. And it's just a continuation of that. And these verses aren't meant to be read in a way that is rigid, but rather they speak of the character of the woman, like we said. It would be, it would be bad for us to take this literally in the sense that maybe a woman would come into our midst who was 50, and she was a widow, and we'd say, sorry, you have to wait 10 years before we can take care of you because you're not 60 yet. I mean, it's not meant to be taken that way, but it's the suggestion because in the Jewish tradition, a, a woman who was over 60 was considered an old age and not childbearing age. So that's why that number is used. And it's the idea that she, she, she can't marry. She has no hope. So let's take care of her. The first 
category of widows are characterized by devotion, compassion, and good works. Verse 11 through 15, in contrast. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And that just means that um, their desire for marriage supersedes their devotion to Christ, is what that's saying. And so they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Is a category of women who are young enough to remarry, and that's what Paul encourages them to do, so that they can, they can secure provision through another man. A woman who doesn't have good character, who has lost devotion to the Lord because she's distracted and consumed with finding her own provision. This is, and this is hard for some of us to, um, to understand or to come to grips with, because don't we want to just like take care of anybody who comes? I think, I, I mean, that's the heart we want to have, is just compassionate, because that's how God is with us. But Paul is... Paul is encouraging Timothy to be wise and discerning and ask good questions because um, whenever, whenever material help comes along, it's wise and discerning to know the history of people you're helping, to ask good questions, to know that whatever help we give wouldn't just be enabling bad behavior. There's a good book out called uh, When Helping Hurts, and you can read it, and it talks about how Christians, in the name of doing good, have actually hurt people by enabling the sin just by throwing money at it. And so being discerning, Paul's saying, uh, being discerning and so that we wouldn't just enable sin, would enable bad behavior, that the family can't step in. Those are good questions, and it seems cold at first, but they're actually, it's actually loving. And, and if we say yes to this person, we have to say no to someone else if we have limited resources. And just as a plug for Helping Hand Fund, we have a Helping Hand Fund here. So if God's blessed you with extra, you can always give in the giving box to the Helping Hand Fund. And then, and then we have a compassion team led by John Norland, the deacon, and the, his team and the, uh, and the elders of this church decide where that money should go to the greatest need. And so if you ever feel compelled that the Lord leads you, you can always give to that fund. So how do we apply all this? A wrong way to look at this passage, like we said, is like, well, we don't have a lot of widows here, so it doesn't apply. And I think, I don't think it's a stretch to say, um, to look at this passage and, and look, it says, truly widows are ones who are alone. And, and I think it's a good question to ask, who in our midst is truly alone? Do we know how many here are spiritual widows? We call it spiritual widows, peop, uh, wives who have husbands who've who, who, who have not, are not in the faith. And maybe we, maybe we don't need to come around them physically or materially, but we can come around them spiritually. Do we know who those people are in our midst? We have ladies in our midst like that. We have widowers in our midst. We have people who are truly alone, people who've lost um, loved ones, people who have lost fathers or mothers, people who have been abandoned by their parents, um, abused by their parents, people who've gone through divorce. These people are truly alone. And it's the heart of God that these people in the body of Christ would be taken care of. I don't think it's a stretch to take this idea of widowhood and, and expand it to a true widow is someone who's truly alone. And here's our challenge, church body. Do we, church family, do we even know who they are? I was convicted this week. I'm a, I'm a see a need fill a need kind of guy. So if someone came to me or someone walked by my gaze and I saw that need, I think I'm, by God's grace, okay at filling that need. But I'm not a look for a need, fill a need kind of guy. That's hard. I'm, I'm not good at that. And so do you, do we look for people 
who are truly alone. When someone comes into our body, do we ask, are, we, are we finding that, that out? Are they, are they alone? Do they have family? Do they have people around them? Do you know everyone in your community group? Are they alone? I've hid alone in a crowd before. I've been very depressed before, and no one knew it because I was a good actor. There's people who are truly alone in our midst. And this is God's heart for people. May we be a body that reflects God's love for people in this. And part four, last part, the heart of God. It's the conclusion, the heart of God. In the beginning, when God designed men and women, when all was very good, God declared one thing not good, that man would be alone. So God gave Adam Eve a perfect match for him. This set up the pattern for marriage. God designed men and women with a deficiency, deficiency on purpose. The deficiency is that alone man is not good. Together, they're very good, perfectly suited so that in order to be the best version of themselves, they need each other. This is a principle that applies to all of human life from the moment in the beginning to today. It, it, it is not good for man to be alone. Man, mankind, people, it's not good for us to be alone. We were designed in such a way that to be all that we were meant to be, we need each other. The best thing that happened in the beginning was relationship, companionship, provision, never experiencing the not good of being alone. And the first and best provision of that relationship was that God, Yahweh himself, was with Adam. His hands molded and fashioned him out of clay physically. God did not fling mud off into the distance like some Clash of the Titans God on a globe somewhere in the distance. God was there in the garden forming Adam. Picture a sculptor. God was there. It was a relationship. It was a relationship. The first human relationship was God and Adam. Adam with his father, his daddy. But as good as that was, God wanted more. He wanted very good. He made Eve. And God was in the garden physically in perfect relationship with the two of them as their father. It was very good. Very good. And then we all know the story from then till now. The fall happened. The fall of our relation, very good relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Sin happened. The curse happened. So that now... Men die, and separation happens, and aloneness happens. Men die laboring and toiling, leaving their wives with the not good of being alone, make, uh, making them widows. Couples separate, leaving the not good of children being alone. Orphans. Young women get pregnant, desperately trying to connect with a man sometimes, to be together, trying desperately not to be alone. Men abandon women looking for another and another, leaving the woman with the not good of being alone. Women abandon babies in our world because of the memory of whatever, leaving the ch children with the not good of being alone. In fact, the most devastating uh, effect of sin is the not good of being alone. Because of sin, we have orphans. We have widows, we have divorce, separation, and death. The ultimate end of sin for someone who never repents and turns to the Father is being alone. Hell is ultimate aloneness, left with the torment of themselves alone. Because apart from God, that's all people live for is themselves alone. So God, being gracious, gives them what they want, themselves alone. Hell 
There's, there's nothing more not gooder than that. That was a bad sentence. Yes, it was. Um, it's not good. It's, it's the worst. That is the worst. God from the beginning was near to us. He walked and hung out with Adam and Eve. I wasn't there, uh, but I read between the lines. I believe that's the picture. I really believe it. He was near and with them in very good relationship, companionship. He wants it back. He wants very good again. Praise be to God that he's not done, right? And he, and he promises all throughout his word from the very beginning to the end to make everything very good again. And he's, he's not done. He hates anything that's not good. And he hates the separation and the loneliness and the aloneness. And praise be to God, he's not done. We could see the very heart and desire of God to remedy the aloneness everywhere, to bring us near again. I just was doing a, a, research, a study uh, or um, a, a search in scripture of widows. And, and wherever you see widows listed, it's always like fatherless with them and sojourners with them. And so in the book of Deuteronomy alone, there's 11, 11 references um, to the fatherless and widow and sojourner. And it speaks to the heart of God. And let me just read a few of them. Just in Deuteronomy, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say amen. I could go on and on. I think we could fill a whole service just reading scriptures about widows and orphans and, and sojourners because it's the heart of God to remedy that true aloneness. And he does it. It's no coincidence that the three uh, truly alone circumstances, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner, it's no, it's no coincidence that those are the very uh, greatest pictures of himself that God gives in scripture. To meet that bridegroom, father, and dwelling place. The good news is that our father has done everything possible at the expense of his own son to give us the only thing that will cure our desperate aloneness, namely himself. It's not good that anyone would be alone without a place, without a home, wandering alone. So what does God do? He sends Jesus. He sends a sojourner to us, one without a home, a nomad, someone who wasn't even welcome in his hometown. He had no place to lay his head so that we could have a home one day. It's not good that anyone would be alone and fatherless, no protection, no provision to never know the embrace and touch of a daddy, to be alone and fend for themselves. So what does God do? He sends his only son, subjects him to ridicule, torment, beating, mocking, and he doesn't rescue his son. He lets him take it. And then on the cross, when he needs his father most, Jesus in the most alone point of his life, everyone who he called friend, gone. From the hell of that cross, he cries out to his father, and his father gives no answer. No one has ever known that utter aloneness or abandonment. It's not good that anyone be truly alone, widowed, with no companion, no husband, no spouse, no oneness, no one to share life's burdens, the joy of family, of sharing life. So what does God do? He sends his son 
to be the bridegroom, to be a redeemer, to rescue, to be the knight in shining armor, to defeat the dragon, to rescue from the dungeon his beautiful bride, the church all clothed in white with the righteousness that he purchased with his shed blood, that he vindicated by defeating death itself. The ultimate aloneness is gone. The last part hasn't happened yet, right? We're still awaiting our bridegroom. We're still that bride. We know we're married. We know we have the ring. We have the Holy Spirit. But yet we're waiting our bridegroom physically to come back, to take me home, to take us home to our Father's house. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I want us to think about it just like that. It's a celebration. It's a celebration. You've heard it before that communion is like the anniversary. Um, anniversary. So, so baptism is like, is like the wedding when, when it symbolizes the union we have with Christ, when we've been brought near and it's, it's a marriage with him, united with him. But communion is like the celebration of the anniversary of that event that we've been saved already and we come to the table remembering what he's done, um, just, like a, just like a wedding anniversary. It's a beautiful picture. Remembering our bridegroom. Communion is a celebration of remembrance of the past. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. He was condemned. We were forgiven. He was stripped naked and we were clothed in white. He was abandoned. We were accepted. He was forsaken by his father. We were adopted by the father. Communion is a celebration of of the present. He is near to us now by his spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We have the ring, as it were. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit on us. We are married to God. We are united with Him, and we have the Spirit guaranteeing that. It's a celebration of the present reality we have. And communion, I believe, is also a celebration of hope of what's to come. Paul said that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He what? Until He comes. He's coming. He's coming, our bridegroom is coming, and, and, and the table is a picture of maybe that, that wedding feast that we get to share united with Christ one day and with each other. It's a celebration of what's to come, and let me read, uh, before we go to the table, let me read just a couple passages from what that's going to look like. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Revelation 19, 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How beautiful that day will be, and and to see the bridegroom's gaze upon his bride, and to see us as beautiful because he made us that way. And then Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That means the separation was gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's no more sojourning. We are with him. He dwells with 
us. It says he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus became a sojourner. Jesus was abandoned by the Father, left alone on the cross, but he didn't get defeated by that. He defeated death, and now he's our bridegroom. He will come back for his bride, the church. He did it all so that we would never have to truly be alone anymore. So that we could experience the very good of the relationship with him. So take some time and reflect all that God has done through Jesus to bring you into the very good of relationship with him and to eradicate the, the not good of being alone anymore. And we'll take, and then come and get the elements as you feel led, and then we'll take them together when you return back to your seats.